we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, I, we have a ton of ground to cover today, so I do want to kind of just jump right in. If this is your first semester, um, I'm obviously new to you. My name is Mitchell. The only reason Ken has me here is to bring the average age of this room down significantly, and so um, that's, that's why I'm here. But uh, yeah, we're, we have just so much to cover today, and typically in Band of Brothers, we you know, that's kind of what we have to do because we cover entire books over the course of, you know, 11, 12 weeks, which, you know, normally is fine. But in the book of Hebrews, every other word is some massive theological doctrinal statement and so we have to spend time on. So it might seem like we're drinking from a fire hose, but I promise all of this is just, it's been, it's been challenging for me, but it's also been incredibly encouraging for me over the last couple of weeks as I've prepared for this. Um, but we're going to be in Hebrew, the end of Hebrews 4 and go through the middle of Hebrews 6. Um, so y'all can turn there. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to pray for us before we get started. Father, thank you for uh, today and for, for bringing all the men that are here this morning. Uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, as we dive into your word, Lord, that we would see how you are our great high priest, Lord, that we would see um, how you are better than anything that this world has to offer. And then while we're faced with the temptation to run to other things, that are not you, or that we would be reminded today of how good you are. We would be reminded today of how faithful you are to your promises and how that we can always rely on you. So Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning in our time together. And then Lord, that you would speak through me and it wouldn't be my words, but it would be yours. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so like I said, the, the book of Hebrews, we, we've really, to set the context, if we were to look back over the last three to four weeks, one of the things that we constantly keep saying is the book of Hebrews is uh, written to these believers who are considering returning to Judaism. That's one of the things they're looking around their life and they're saying, man, I'm not prosperous. I'm not, uh, my life doesn't look the way I want it to look. I'm being persecuted. I'm going through trials. Maybe this whole Jesus thing is not all that it's cracked up to be. And let's go back to what we knew, and that is returning to Judaism. And so the author of Hebrews is writing this letter to these people and telling them, one, don't do that, but here, let me tell you why. The reason not to do that is because Jesus is so much better. He, the author of Hebrews points to the supremacy of Jesus all throughout the book, all throughout the letter. We're only four chapters in, and we've seen this in multiple places. Uh, chapter one, it talks about how he's, Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the prophets. He's going to get really specific with them and talk about how he's better than Moses and, and Joshua. These would have been obviously two um, very important people in uh, Judaism. But then he, we don't get to chapter seven today, but he talks about specifically Aaron, the high priest. It's going to be important for us today because today is the passage where we see Jesus referred to as the great high priest. But the question becomes, why does he focus on the high priest? So Jesus is the better high priest. He's our great high priest. And in their context, this is somebody, these, these believers who are considering returning to Judaism, in their context, the high priest would have been somebody who was very important to them, very prominent to them, somebody who uh, would be the, the main person that they would be running to if they were to return back. So the high priest was really this head religious leader of the Israelites, the most prominent figure um, within Judaism. And their main job was to offer a sin offering for the congregation. 
uh, and for themselves. That's, that's going to be the key between the high priest and Jesus, our great high priest, is while, yes, these high priests had to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, they themselves were also sinners. And so while they're offering these sacrifices for the sins of the, the people of Israel, they also had to do so for themselves. They had to be cleansed as well. They were the only person who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. They were the only person that was allowed to go into the most holy place behind the veil, the veil that was torn, the curtain that was torn at the crucifixion of Jesus. This is where they would go in order to offer these sacrifices. They would offer sacrifices for themselves and for the people. And the way that they would do this is they would sprinkle blood on the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat. Now, this is important because we see in this moment that when they would do this, they were offering sacrifices um, for the sins of the people so that they would be cleansed and so that they would be made right before the Lord. But they're also doing this for themselves. This is important because this is foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice of Christ and how that is permanent for us. But the author of Hebrews is going to focus in on the high priest and really kind of use this as his argument to say, hey, don't run back to that. Let me show you how Jesus is better. And he does so by talking about uh, really the greatness of Christ as our high priest and how he is different, how he is better. And so we look at the end of Hebrews chapter four, and it says, speaking of the high priest or Jesus as high priest, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us with confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So he focuses in on uh, really the, the main argument is going to be Jesus is better. Jesus is the great high priest. He's greater than any of the earthly high priests. Uh, he, he is our great high priest. And so we see this, this reference to the great high priest over and over and over again. And so the logical question becomes, okay, what is so great? Why is he so great? Why do we see him referred to this as the great high priest? What's so great about it? I think this passage in scripture really kind of points to three specific things. First, Jesus is our permanent intercessor. This is why he's better than the earthly high priest that we see in Aaron or going all the way to even like Caiaphas and, and John. He is our permanent intercessor. The main, one of the main differences between uh, the, high, the earthly high priest and Jesus was how they interceded for us, the sacrifices that they made. Aaron or any of the earthly high priests, they could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. They could only make this sacrifice for the sins of the people once a year. And you've got to imagine, man, you're putting a lot of trust. If you're a Jew, you're putting a lot of trust and faith into this one person in order to get this right. It was funny, I was sitting at a table in Fort Worth um, last week and one of the guys was, was kind of talking about this point and he was saying, man, if I were a Jew at that time, before the high priest was to go make this sacrifice, I'd pull him aside and be like, you better not screw this up. Because if you do, we're toast for the next year. We're, our sins aren't gonna be atoned for for the next year. So I'm putting my trust and faith in you to, not, to, to get this right. Think about it. This, I mean, that's, that's crazy, right? Like it's, it's hard to sit there and think like, man, I'm putting my trust and faith 
in a sinful person who also has to make a sacrifice for their sins at the same time as they're making a sacrifice for my sins. So Aaron could only do this once, but see, or once a year, whereas Jesus is our permanent intercessor. He sacrificed himself on the cross, took on our sins so that we might have a relationship with the Father. Y'all, studying the book of Hebrews has really challenged me. Um, this is obviously, can, can be a difficult book to, to teach, but this passage in particular, really four through six, has kind of challenged my view of Jesus. I think so often I don't view him as active. I see, or I think to myself, okay, he died on the cross. He sacrificed himself for my sins. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the father. He's done his thing. Now he's just, he's waiting to return. What this passage shows us is that, no, he is our permanent intercessor. He, if we are in Christ, at this very moment, every second of the day, Jesus Christ is interceding on your behalf. He's interceding on my behalf. It's not just when I sin. It's not just when I screw up. It's every second of the day, he is actively interceding on your behalf so that now, if you are in Christ, God does not look at you and see your sin, see your shame, see your guilt, see your past. He looks at you and he sees his son. He sees that you're covered by the blood of Christ. And it, it should be so encouraging to us to see that at every second, Christ is interceding for us. So one of the main differences is Jesus is our permanent intercessor, whereas Aaron or any of the earthly high priests could only do this once a year. Also at the end of Hebrews 4, we see that the, the great high priest, that Jesus could sympathize with our weakness. You see, he took on human flesh. He set aside his divine prerogatives. This is something that something that's vitally important because it shows us really the main difference is that Jesus was perfect. He was sinless, yet he still faced all of the temptations that you and I face every day. We couldn't trust him if he didn't, right? He took on human flesh. He set aside his divine prerogatives. He can sympathize with us because he understands what we're going through because everything that we've faced, every temptation that we face, he has faced as well, yet he defeated it. He did not fall into that temptation. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He experienced temptation without giving into it. And that's one of the main differences between him and any of the earthly high priests, specifically Aaron in chapter seven is he, Aaron, the earthly high priest had to, it was required of him to purify himself. He constantly, I mean, he's a sinner. He, was, he had sin in his life. He, just like the Israelites had to be, purified for their sins, whereas Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. He was tempted and he was tried. You see, he, Jesus experienced everything that is dark, problematic, and hard in this world. And what's amazing about that is we couldn't trust him if he, if he didn't go through that. The fact that he understands exactly what it is we're going through, the temptations that we face, scripture tells us that he, he knows, he understands, he gets us. He faced everything that we faced, yet he shows us how in his, in his sinlessness and his perfectness, he defeated those things. But because he went through them, because he understood them, um, we can trust him. He can relate to us. He can sympathize with us in our weakness. He was tempted to sin just as we are, yet he never did. 
You know, you can look at specific passages. Matthew 4 is, is one that I would look to a lot. It says, he was tempted by wealth, power, comfort. Literally in this moment, Jesus is, he's in the wilderness and he's praying and he is confronted by Satan himself. And he offers him all of these things. Satan offers him wealth, power, comfort, all of this. All he says is, you just have to bow the knee to me. You have to bow down to me. And Jesus doesn't do it. Another place that Jesus is tempted to sin, um, but doesn't and follows the Lord's will is it's at the cross. This is, I think sometimes a way that um, we don't like to, to think of Jesus in this moment, but he was tempted to avoid the suffering of the cross. Look at Luke 22. It says, this is Jesus speaking in the garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, if you were willing, take this cup from me yet not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Here at this moment, Jesus is in the garden. He knows what's about to happen. He knows he's about to go through the, the horrificness of the cross. He's going to go through just an immense amount of pain. He knows what's coming. And he looks to heaven, he looks to God, he says, if there is any other way, can we do it? But if not, your will be done, not mine. And we know that he was experiencing stress, anxiety, because literally in this moment, it says his, his sweat was becoming like great drops of blood. This is a medical condition that we know comes on from immense stress and immense anxiety. Yet he doesn't fall into the temptation to leave and go the other way. I mean, think about it if, if this were you. If, if you were Jesus in this moment, knowing how you were about to be treated, knowing years down the road, what people were gonna be saying about you, even to this day, I would be like, heck no, like I'm, I'm not doing this. I'm, I'm running the other way. I know I'm about to get arrested. But we see Jesus knowing what he was about to go through took on the cross. This passage in Luke 22 actually um, I hold it really near and dear to my heart because y'all might not know this about me, but a large part of my story is dealing with um, a lot of anxiety. And honestly, even to this day, I still kind of do, um, but just like panic attack and that kind of stuff that comes from it. Um, somewhere along the line, I don't, I don't know exactly when, but I convinced myself that the moment you feel any fear, worry, anxiety, whatever it is, that the moment you feel it, it's, it's sin, you're sinning. And I would just feel so guilty. I would feel a ton of shame because anytime I felt anything like that, I was convincing myself that I had sinned. And honestly, not that long ago, I had somebody challenge me on that thought by pointing to this passage and saying, okay, do you think Jesus was perfect? Do you think Jesus was sinless? I said, well, yeah, of course. And he's like, okay, well, in Luke 22, Jesus obviously was feeling stress and anxiety. Was he sinning in that moment? I was like, well, no, I, I don't think he was. He goes, yeah, exactly. Because it's not a sin to feel those things. It's how do you respond? Here, Jesus felt the stress of not wanting to take on the, or not really knowing what was gonna happen uh, when he took on the cross. Yet even in that stress, he says, Father, your will be done, not mine. So it's in how you respond to those things. But Jesus in this felt, um, felt the stress he 
understand us. It's just for me, another point to show that Jesus understands the weakness that we have because he defeated all of it, but he faced all of it as well. So we should run to Jesus Christ for sympathy and compassion because he understands fully what it is we are going through. He is our great high priest. This is something that he far outweighs the earthly high priest in. You see, he was tempted, he was tried, but he came out guiltless and fully righteous. This is something that we can put our hope in. So what does this mean for us? You and I can confidently approach the throne of grace as Hebrews 4 says, we can approach the throne of grace knowing that we're gonna be shown grace and mercy in time of need. We can be confident in Christ and his perfect representation for us or representation as he intercedes for us. We can go before the Lord expecting grace and mercy in time of need. And this is the best part, knowing that if we are in Christ, we won't be rejected, we won't be turned away, we won't be cast out. At every moment, we will be embraced, loved, cared for, and shown grace and mercy at all times. It doesn't matter what the sin was in your life. It doesn't matter what's your past. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith and hope in him, then you can confidently go before the throne of grace, knowing that God will show you mercy. God will show you grace at all times. He will embrace you. He will love you and he will care for you. This is a passage that, like I said, talking about my, my anxiety and the, the sins of, or feeling guilty of, about things in my past, a lot of times I've convinced myself that one, I have to earn my salvation. I have to do all these things, read my Bible, pray more, uh, do whatever that is to make myself look better before the Lord. But this passage is saying, no, Jesus Christ, as he's interceding for you, if you have placed your faith and hope in him, no matter what your past is, you can go before the Lord knowing you will be shown grace and mercy in your time of need at all times, always. So what the author of Hebrews is trying to say here is look at how Jesus Christ is better. He ends the end of chapter four by pointing to how Jesus can sympathize with us. He understands us. And then he's been gonna begin in chapter five by saying, okay, let's look at the earthly high priest and then let's look at Jesus's high priest. Let's look at their similarities and differences, kind of compare and contrast and see how Jesus is better. So at the beginning of chapter five, he starts off by talking about the, earth, the earthly high priest. He says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So the first thing he says, the high priest is appointed. The high priest is chosen, is, is appointed to act on behalf of men, which this is a similarity between um, him and Jesus because Jesus was obviously appointed. Jesus was the son of God. Um, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, which this is something that he also did. Uh, he can deal gently, the earthly high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. This is one of the points that we, we see at the end of Hebrews four as well, but the difference being that Jesus was perfect and the earthly high priest still had sin in their life. They were beset with weakness, but because of that, they could relate to the people that they were making sacrifices for. And then in verse three, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. That being the main difference between Jesus and the high priests of Judaism is they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. 
Then you jump down to verse seven and you begin, the author of Hebrews begins to talk about, okay, here is, here's Jesus as the great high priest. One of the similarities, he's offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he is heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The main difference here is he was made perfect. Jesus Christ was perfect. None of the earthly high priests were. Aaron, Caiaphas, you name it, anyone in between, none of them were perfect. They all had sin in their life and they all had to offer sacrifices for themselves as well. And then none of them were the source of eternal salvation. All of them were pointing to who this was. All of the earthly high priests were pointing to the coming Messiah. They were pointing to the the coming sacrifice that he was going to make. And then Jesus himself being sinless, being perfect, taking on the sins of the world on the cross was that perfect sacrifice and became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Ken in his devotionary, I think summed this up really, really well. He says, Jesus did not simply offer sacrifices on behalf of the people as Aaron and his sons had done. Jesus offered himself. He made the ultimate sacrifice of his own life. And even though he was divine, the son of God as the human Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. His obedience, while it led to his death, resulted in his perfection and his glorification. He was raised from the dead and restored to his rightful place at the side of God the Father. And he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus was the better high priest. Jesus is the better high priest because of everything that he's done. He offered a better sacrifice. If you look at the two sacrifices uh, between the great high priest and the earthly high priest, the earthly high priests were offering the blood of these animals to um, cleanse the people of Israel and themselves. Jesus offered himself. He was the better sacrifice. And because of this, he was the, sinly, the sinless high priest. Ken uh, finishes off in that quote and he says, and as a result, those who place their faith in his sacrifice can share in his righteousness and have peace with God. We can be justified made right, and made right with God. He is the great high priest. Here's the thing that uh, before moving on, I want us to understand. There's really from the end of four, or really kind of all of chapter four um, to the middle of chapter five, we see this, this idea of the great high priest versus the earthly high priest and, and the differences and the similarities there. All of this is pointing to the gospel. I don't know if you, if you look at the end of four when it talks about we have a great high priest who can, he can sympathize with us in our weakness. And then going on to in chapter five, he is the source of eternal salvation. Y'all, this author of Hebrews is writing to these people that are thinking of returning to Judaism. And he's saying here, his argument is remember the gospel. Remember what Jesus Christ has done for you and what he has taken on himself on the cross. He 
came to earth. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He was fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life, took the sins of, of the entire world on himself so that he, or so that you could have life. He was the perfect sacrifice. He took those sins on himself so that you might have an opportunity to have a relationship with the Father. The author of Hebrews is reminding, reminding these people of the gospel. And he's saying, run back to the gospel. Now it's my hope and my prayer that everybody in this room has believed that. But before I move on, I, I would be remiss to say that if this is the first time you've heard that, or if that's something that you've never heard, please don't let today pass before, or don't let today end. Don't leave here today without coming to talk to me, coming to talk to Ken, talking to your table shepherd. Guys, we have seen the life transformation of the gospel and we would love to share that with you. So don't let today end without doing that. But then if that's something that has happened to you, if you have been changed by the gospel, then the call to you now becomes, what do we do with that? How are we going to share that with others? So he's reminding them of the gospel. And then he, he finally turns to them and say, okay, my argument was Jesus is the better high priest. Let me remind you of what he's done for you. And now he says, okay, there's the argument. Let's look at your heart. Let's look at what's going on in your life. Why are you considering returning to Judaism? Why are you considering leaving the gospel, leaving what Christ has done for you? So he says, we have much to say about all this, everything that he just explained about Jesus being the great high priest. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. I mean, talk about a slap in the face. He says, you've become dull of hearing. You, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. I mean, can you imagine reading this and being like, okay, this guy's trying to convince us to, to not return to Judaism. And then bam, chapter five, you've become dull of hearing. You're, I mean, talk about a slap in the face, but he's trying to remind them, look at what Christ has done for you. You're forgetting this. You're forgetting everything that he has done. The sacrifice that he has made for you, you are forgetting for all of this. And it's their forgetfulness of that that has led to their faithlessness. And this is something that is still true for us today. Anytime we forget the work of the Lord, forget what Christ has done for us, it leads to our faithlessness. It breeds spiritual complacency. They had become spiritually complacent. And because of that, they were now vulnerable to things that were leading them astray. He says, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature. You see, their lack of progression had led to their regression. For you and I, as believers, when it comes to our walk with the Lord, when it comes to our relationship with Him, you're either growing in it or you're going backwards. There is no place for just sitting still and not growing. You're either growing or you're going backwards. See, these people, and I think this, is, this can be true for us today if we're not careful, they knew the truths of the faith. They knew the gospel. They had been told these things, but they failed to go any deeper. I think this is really what this author is saying is, hey, look, your relationship with God 
is a mile long and an inch deep. There, there's nothing to be rooted in. It, it, they'd built, you'd built your house on the sand rather than built your house on the rock. They didn't have a firm foundation. So the moment things got twisted, experiencing persecution, um, experiencing trials, things not going the way they wanted them to go, they decided, okay, this isn't, this isn't what I want. Let's go back to what we do know, and that is Judaism. And the author is pleading with them to not do that. You see, they knew these truths, but they had failed to go any deeper. He urgently wanted them to grow in their relationship with the Lord. I mean, if there's a sentence that describes what Ken and I want for you guys, it's, it's this. There's nothing more that we enjoy seeing than you growing in your relationship with God, you diving deeper into the Word day in and day out to know Him more, to become more like Him. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. You, you can tell the, the care that he has for these people, the love that he has for these people, because he's saying, I know what's gonna happen if you return. I know what you're leaving behind. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Understand that Jesus Christ is better. He urgently wants them to grow in their relationship with the Father. This is something that we see all throughout the, the New Testament. The, this plea to grow your relationship with the Lord is something that all of the New Testament authors point to. First Peter chapter two, it says, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you can grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment and now, now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. Then again, in second Peter, he says, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Over and over again, there's different places where growing in the Lord is, or growing in a relationship with the Lord is referred to as, you know, crave spiritual milk, pure spiritual milk. First Peter 2 specifically references, like newborn babies, crave this. Y'all have a one-year-old at home, and right now I have seen him crave milk like nothing else. I've hundreds of times have given him a bottle of milk. When what's crazy is we have this this routine every single morning. Now, obviously not this morning because I was here super early, but every morning he wakes up, I'll, I'll get out of bed, go get him out of his crib, change his diaper. You know, he's crying, all that kind of stuff. And then we'll walk out into the kitchen and instantly his demeanor changes because as soon as I open up the fridge and he sees me pull out the carton of milk, that kid loses his mind. I mean, I know I have, my, for those of you that haven't met my son, he's really big. He's, I, I kid you not, he's in the 99th percentile in every size category. So like he eats me out of house and home already, but that kid loves milk. I'll pull out the carton of milk and he goes nuts. He's jumping up and down, clapping, like screaming, his eyes go wide. So I'll pour the milk in the sippy cup, put him on our couch. And then, I mean, he downs that thing. I'm, it's, it's, he's drinking it like it's the last bit of liquid that he will ever drink in his entire life. And then he gets done and then he'll immediately hand it off to me. And we've, he can't talk yet. And so we're, we've like kind of taught him some sign language so that he can somewhat communicate with us. And the sign for more is this. And so he'll, he'll pass me the bottle and just do this constantly. More, more, more. And, you know, I'll get him more and, and you know, eventually he'll, He'll be done and then he starts crying because I won't give him anymore. But it's, it's crazy. And what's been so cool for me this week as I've prepared for this lesson is how the Lord just like, 
he has shown me in the, the, the mundaneness of my different things in my life where, okay, this is what this passage means. The, the ferocity with which my son drinks the milk from his sippy cup every morning, that's the image that these authors are trying to convey. They're saying like, man, that, the, 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 how badly he craves this milk, that's how badly we want you to crave growing in your relationship with the Lord to where you can't get enough. And whenever you're done, you just want more and more and more and more. That's the type of relationship we want you to have with the Lord. That's the type of growth and, and yearning we want you to have for God's word because we don't want you to become spiritually complacent. We want you to continue to grow in your relationship with the Lord. See, there's no place for complacency in the life of the believer. Us coming to know him, us being changed by the gospel should result in us becoming more like him. This process of sanctification from when you become, when you become a believer, when you come to know the Lord, till the day the Lord calls you home, us becoming more and more like him. In Ephesians chapter four, it says, this will continue until all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. You see, growing in our Christ-likeness, growing in our relationship with the Lord keeps us from backsliding. What does it do? It encourages us, it strengthens us, and it gives us hope constantly growing our relationship with the Father is something that when we look around the world today and everything seems to be going crazy, everything seems to be going astray, this is what encourages us. This is what strengthens us. This is what gives us hope. And this is the message that this author, this author is trying to get these guys to understand. Look, I know things aren't going the way you might necessarily think they should be going, but let me tell you why Jesus is better. Let me tell you why Jesus is better than returning to Judaism. And it's because of the gospel. It's because of what Christ has done for you. That should encourage us. That strengthens us. That gives us hope. And growing in our Christ-likeness keeps us from returning to those things. And here's the, the best part about this. I talked about this a little bit earlier. We have that hope. We've been changed by that hope. Our life has been transformed. And we are to share that hope with others. Romans 10, this is a verse we, we all should be familiar with. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? This is the call we have. For those of you who have been changed by the gospel, those of you who have everything that the author is talking about here in these passages today, if that's changed your life, what are you supposed to do with that? You're supposed to share that hope with others. How are people going to believe this if no one tells them? You and I have got the call in our lives to take the gospel that's transformed us, leave this room, leave these four walls and take this gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what we're supposed to do with this. You see, spiritual growth cannot take place in isolation. This is not something that is meant to just stay with you. 
This is something that we're supposed to take to others, but then also do in community with others. You could call it a band of brothers. Um, Growth requires interaction with fellow believers. You and I were made for community. We were made to uh, have community grow our relationship with God, not only with ourselves, but with those around us. The reason we set up Band of Brothers the way we do at tables and don't really change those tables throughout the years is because we want you guys to build a community of men around you that can keep you accountable, that can help you grow in their relationship with the Lord, help you grow in your relationship with the Lord, people that you can run to in time of need and guys that are going to point you to the gospel. It's, a, it's, a, it's really kind of like a, self, uh, a fail-safe to not growing complacent. You've got guys in your life who can speak into your life and say, hey, you know, this is where I think the Lord is acting in your life right now, or this is what scripture says about X, Y, Z. We're hoping to provide that for you so that we can protect against spiritual complacency. And so he says, this is kind of where you're at. We don't want you to be there. He's giving them this warning of, of growing spiritually complacent. And then you get into chapter six, and this is, I just kind of want to give you guys a caveat. This is a passage of scripture that a lot of people go to, to talk about, they get kind of confused. They go to it to talk about, okay, are people saying, or is Hebrew saying you can lose your salvation? And my answer to that is no, I think this is going to be a warning to these people. These people have, the people that he's writing to understand, they've been told the gospel, they, they know what Christ has done for them. And he now says, okay, here's my warning for you return to scripture, return to the gospel. Don't leave it because if you do, here's what's going to happen. He says in uh, chapter six, verse one, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And And this we will do if God permits. So he's basically saying, look, you understand these core truths. You understand these things that we've talked about. We can return to them if we need to, but let's move on. Let's grow, let's mature. And he says in verse four, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again, the son of God to their, own, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The author here is urging them to grow and mature in the relationship with Christ because if they don't, they open themselves up to believing the false teachings of the day. The author here is afraid of some of them in the congregation falling away because they're not growing in their walk with the Lord. His fear is not unfounded because we see this all throughout scripture. I mean, we've talked about last week and I'll point to it here, Numbers 13. The the people of God, the people of Israel, they are literally at the foot of the promised land, the land that God has promised to give them. They send in the, the spies, 10 come back and say, this is impossible, we can't do this. And two of them are like, no, trust God, trust his promises, he will provide for us. And they reject the promised land. Literally the land that God has told them time and time again, I am going to give you, they reject it. They don't think God's going to do what he's going to do because they'd become 
spiritually complacent. This is something that, like I said, we see all throughout scripture. But think about specifically what those people had seen. In Numbers 13, the, the people who had come out of Egypt, think of what they've seen God do. He had parted the Red Sea. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They saw all the plagues. As they're wandering through the wilderness, fire was leading them by night and a cloud was leading them by day. Every single morning they would wake up and manna had, would have appeared for them. God would have provided this for them. They had the 10 commandments. An entire generation of God's people witnessed these things. And then they get to the foot of the promised land and they still fell away. They still rejected the promises of God. So the author of Hebrews, knowing that these people would have understood that story, knowing that they would know it, know that story, and, and he does as well. He says, don't become like them. Don't do this. This is what I don't want you to do because here's the result. And it's kind of funny. It's, it's really super interesting. Ken and I were talking about this passage, especially that last point. This entire generation experienced all of these things and they still fell away. Can you imagine being the kids of this, of these, this generation? For 40 years, they're wandering in the wilderness. And now the parents of the, the next generation are saying, don't do what we did. We're not gonna experience the promised land. And here's why, because we rejected the promises of God. We didn't trust that the Lord would do everything he said he would. Don't make the same mistake that we did. Don't become spiritually complacent. Don't fall away. Trust the Lord, trust God. You can, he will not fail you. I promise, trust in that. That's really powerful. Those are some powerful words. And so we see, understanding that, the, the way that really all throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel um, continue to, to kind of fall back into their sin. But the author of Hebrews is saying, you've seen that then and you saw the result. I desperately don't want that for you. Run to the Lord. If we fail to grow, then we open ourselves up to the possibility of apostasy. And basically what that means is if we're not growing in our relationship with the Lord, we become vulnerable to believe any of the false teachings of the day. That was prominent then, it's prominent now. If we aren't constantly running to scripture, if we aren't growing in our relationship with God, then we become vulnerable to believe things that aren't true. They might look true, but on, or they might look true on the surface, but when faced with scripture, they are not. Paul warns of this multiple times. But he says in 2 Timothy chapter two, avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened and they're upsetting the faith of some. He's saying here, look, there's people who believed false teaching. There's people that are saying the resurrection has already happened and, and when it says they're upsetting the faith of some, what he's saying is he's leading people, these people are leading others astray and they're leading people astray who have grown spiritually complacent. They don't know the truths of scripture. They don't know the truths of God's word and they're leaving the faith. They are being led astray by something that isn't true. And then in 1 Timothy chapter four, it says, now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith and they will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars and their consciences are dead. Knowing that, knowing that this is possible, knowing that scripture says this will happen, the author of Hebrews is saying, please don't let that be you. 
He loves them, cares for them, and wants to see them grow in their relationship and knows the, the, the danger of what it is that they're toying with. And, and the idea of returning back to Judaism, he's seeing that, okay, they aren't growing. They need to grow in their relationship with the Lord. A lack of spiritual growth can have serious consequences. And I think the main point of this passage, while it does get confusing at times, I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is the longer a believer strays from the truth, the harder it becomes for them to repent. The, the longer that they stray away from the truth of the gospel, the, they decide to leave those things, the harder it becomes for them to repent because they don't believe it. And here's the fascinating thing is their life will make, the way they live their life makes it look like Christ's death on the cross and sacrifice for your sins is in, or their sins is insufficient because they will have claimed they'd been changed by the gospel. They will, they will have one point in time claimed to believe these things and yet they're living their life in a completely different way. They're living their life in a hypocritical way and people would look at that and say, okay, what you're saying about uh, what Christ has done for you, you're living your life a very different way. So something's off here. They're, they'll be living in a way that makes Christ's death look insufficient. So he gives them this warning. He says, this could be you. If you continue down the path that you're on, you are opening up yourself to believing things that are not true, false teaching. But then he says, here's how I know you still have your hope in the promises of God. Picking up in verse nine, he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I think this, this part of uh, really kind of where we're gonna end today, I think the author is pointing to three different areas in their life, reminding them, hey, here's proof that you still have hope in the promises of God. The first area is their work in the ministry. This doesn't mean they're like on staff at a church or anything, but it means that they are living their lives in such a way and doing things in this world that are ministering to others. But see, here's the thing the work that they were doing wasn't the point. It's the proof that they had hope in God's promises. The fact that they were doing the work showed that their, their motives were in the promises of God. Another area was their affection for the Lord. Their love for God in the midst of trial is proof of their hope. If you look at the, the, who this guy's writing to, if you look at their life, things don't seem to be going as planned. They're being persecuted. They're, they're not living their best life now. They're not prosperous. Things are not what they thought they would be. Yet in trial, they're still having love for God. It may have faltered here or there, but he's pointing to say, hey, in, in the midst of trial, your love for God is proof of where you're placing your hope. And then lastly, their love for God's people. How they serve and love the people of God is proof of their hope and where they put their hope. You see, we, I think this passage really can really speak to us because none of us in this room are perfect. We're all sinners, right? We're all sinners in need of a savior. We've all made mistakes. 
We aren't perfect. We're never going to be perfect, but we can be faithful. I feel like we can resonate with this passage because it's people who are having to struggle with the, the, the trials of life, yet they're ultimately or ultimately this author is pointing to how you can be faithful even in those moments. We aren't perfect, but we can be faithful through work of the ministry, love for God and his people. These things are manifestations of Christ's likeness. And it's showing how you can grow your relationship with the Lord in the midst of all of this. We can do all these things, but it's only because of the hope we have in the life transformation work of the gospel of Christ. We have been transformed by the gospel. And because of that, we can do these things. And we are doing that in, in the sense, in the hopes of, of growing and becoming more and more like Christ. You see, the fruit producing life should encourage us to follow Christ no matter our circumstances, no matter what our situation is. But then if you're like me, the question becomes like, okay, what if I'm being faithful but I don't see fruit. I'm not seeing any fruit in my life. I think that that is something that that does happen. Hebrews 11 talks about it. The Christian life doesn't always produce visible fruit. I mean, think about what Paul says. He's like, I planted the seed, then Apollos watered the seed, and then it grew. Like, you don't always see the fruit of your labors. The Christian life doesn't always produce visible fruit. But see, our focus, while, while our fruit, the fruit in our life is a good indication of our heart, it's, it's a good indication of um, what's going on in, our, in terms of our relationship with the Lord, it shouldn't be our main focus. Our main focus should be on the promises of God. Because look what happens in Hebrews 11. This is the, the, the great hall of faith. And, and look at what happens to some of these very faithful people. It says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. And then this is where it gets wild. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And this is the best part. It says, in all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. The only thing that got these people through all of that, I mean, the idea of sawn in two, that's crazy. The only reason any of these people were able to get through all of that affliction was because of their faith. They were commended through their faith. They didn't necessarily receive all of the promises and all the promises of God might not happen or be fulfilled in our lifetime, yet they placed their faith and their hope in the fact that God would fulfill these promises. So it leads me to ask, where are you putting your hope and your strength? Is it your, your works, your success, your knowledge, or is it God's promises? On my, on my way here this morning, I was listening to the, the song, firm foundation. And the main part of the song talks about how God will not fail. He won't fail. He won't fail us. He never will. He never has. Because of that, we can place our hope and hang our hat on the promises of God, knowing that he will fulfill them. And then the end of Hebrews 6, or the end of where we're at today, guys, this, this is the desire that we have for all of you. 
We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. No matter what our circumstances are, we want you to have the full assurance of, of the hope of the gospel, the hope of God's promises until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is our hope for you. Guys, God's promises are trustworthy. He will do what he says he's going to do. I I can guarantee you that. I can promise you that. This is where we put our hope when things don't go our way, when things seem to be going astray. I want to end just with a a personal story um, from my life and how I've I've had to to deal with this um, lately when when things don't go my way or how I expect them to go. Um, A little bit before Christmas, uh, my wife and I experienced a miscarriage and it was really difficult, still is really difficult um, to deal with. And y'all, I can remember sitting on my couch at moments and just being like, God, why? There was a point in time where I was, I was, by myself sitting on my couch crying and literally cried out to the Lord. I was like, why me? I even got to the point where I was like, God, I, I've dedicated my life to working for your church. Why is this happening to me? I had to, I had to go to the mat with God. I really had to wrestle with some of these things. And it's still really difficult dealing with this because it's, it's still fresh. But moving on from that, I, I, I looked back on that and I felt a lot of shame and guilt for how I initially responded, how I blamed God for these things. And I, I can see how my hope wasn't there. But then I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the passage of scripture that I've been assigned to teach because I read the end of Hebrews 4 and it says, if you are in Christ, no matter your sin, no matter what it is that you've done, you can run to the Father knowing that he will show you grace. He will show you mercy in time of need. The old me would have said, no, I've got to get myself right before the Lord before I can even do any of that. But no, God, Jesus can sympathize with me. He understands what I'm going through and he wants me to come to him even in those moments because he wants to show me grace. He wants to show me mercy. And y'all, like I said, I'm still, we're still dealing with the, the hurt, the pain of all of that. But I can confidently stand up here today and tell you, I don't know how I would have gotten through, have gotten through any of this if it had not been for the hope of the gospel. The only reason I can stand up here and tell you that, uh, you know, I know everything's going to be okay is because, man, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging my hat, placing my hope, my faith, my trust in the promises of God because I know they won't fail. And that's all we can do. I know God is good and that's where I have to place my hope. And so even when things don't go our way, this is where we put our hope. This is where we place our faith to have the assurance of hope until the end. That's what the author of Hebrews is wanting for these people. That's what God wants for you today is to have that hope until the end. So here are your questions. The first one says, according to Hebrews eleven thirty-five through 39, not all the promises of God get fulfilled in this life. So why is it essential that we hope until the end? The second one says, while we hope and wait, we are to be fruitful. Where have you seen God producing fruit in your life? 
And then lastly, read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. How does this give you encouragement in your daily life? Father, thank you for um, just all the men here. God, thank you for... um, Thank you for taking on the sins of the world, taking on our sins so that we might have life. God, thank you for showing us your promises. Thank you for being our great high priest. Um, Lord, I I just pray that you would would continue to grow our relationship with you. You would give us um, a yearning so deeply for your word that we cannot get enough and we are constantly going back and wanting more and more and more. Father, I thank you for, for just showing us your promises and helping us to believe that those promises, believe that you are good and trust in the promises that you are going to do what you say you will do and you are going to be faithful. Father, I pray that you're with us in our time this morning in our discussions, Lord, and that you're watching over us and keeping us safe as we drive into work. It's in your name I pray. Amen.